This is our third Shabbat going through the book of Galatians, and we're going to be looking at the last two chapters. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of talks by a pastor named Mark Driscoll from Seattle. Um, he started a network called the Acts 29 Network, and it's a network of church planters, and um, they do these church planters boot camps where they just give really practical talks about things. And um, one, of the, one of the talks I was listening to this week was about the values of expository preaching as compared to, say, topical preaching. You know, sometimes a pastor will have a topic and he'll talk about that topic for 10 weeks or whatever, you know. And just the value of just taking a book of the Bible and going through the book chapter by chapter, eh? And as I was listening, I was thinking, you know what? This is exactly what we're doing. I think we're doing some things right as a movement with, with just going through books of the Bible, letting the scriptures speak for themselves, getting the context um, not just taking two verses and then building an hour-long sermon on them, but taking like seven chapters and getting the main points. So I, I, I feel good about that. Yeah, so let's look at Galatians together. And um, I'll, I'll read a couple things as we go here. Basically, we're just going to go through the verses in Galatians, and um, I will share with you a couple of the things that really jumped out at me, the things that were most meaningful to me. Um, firstly... I know now that the order that we have for reading the second half of the apostolic scriptures is divinely inspired because we're doing matzot, the festival of unleavened bread this week, and in 5 verse 9 he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So there you go, it's just, it's just proof that we're on the right track here. I'm just, just joking, but it is kind of fun when you can see these connections between where you are on the biblical calendar and... Um, but anyway, that's, that's a good verse for this week. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is the week where we're, expo- like we're just laying our lives open before the Father. We're saying, Father, like shine your spotlight on my heart. What's the stuff that you want to clean out of my life? Um, what are the influences that I should get rid of? What are the attitudes that you would like to excise from my soul? Uh, th- th- those kinds of prayers. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Why Messiah set you free? For freedom. He set you free so you could be free. That makes sense. And then he says, therefore, keep standing firm. So how do you maintain your freedom? Let's say there's, uh, we've been talking about how there were these dudes in the Galatian area who were saying things like, you must be circumcised if you want to be saved. If you want to be right with God, you have to convert to Judaism. It is necessary for you to, to do, practice the Torah to, to be justified. Um, these were some of the things. And it was, it was a pressure thing. It was infringing on the free choice that every individual has to have so that their decisions come from heart of love instead of uh, a, a place of being constrained. And this is, this is what Paul says our response is to be when we encounter that spirit. Just stand. Stand firm. I think in today's English, you would probably say something like, guys, dig in your heels and just stand strong. Right, so that's that's the response when you when you encounter that uh, that spirit. He goes on in verse two to say, "I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision, Messiah will be of no benefit to you." Now this is a case where context is everything because remember Paul circumcised Timothy himself. Did that mean that Messiah was of no benefit to Timothy? Is Paul being a little like a little uh, inconsistent here? 
No. So that's the context. So we, we know that he's not saying, if you get circumcised um, or do any of the Torah, Messiah is no longer of any benefit to you. We, we have to read what he's saying here in context. I, I, I think the context is in verse 4, two verses later. He says, you've been severed from Messiah who? You who are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. So, What's the situation here? People were trying to be justified through law. They saw circumcision as some ticket to salvation or something. Very warped, of course. right? It's totally against the Father's grace expressed to us in Yeshua's Kaparai's atonement. But that was the situation. And that's why he was saying, Mashiach will be of no benefit to you if you get circumcised in a situation like that. So, you know, Paul as an apostle was giving halakha. He was laying down some rules for that area and saying, guys, stand strong against this. Don't get circumcised. However, as we see in the case of Timothy, there are times when men will be called by God to be circumcised. I know several men who, who chose to become circumcised later in life. They went through the surgical procedure and it was a meaningful thing to them. They didn't do it to be justified. They weren't doing it for salvation. They were doing it because in their hearts they wanted to. They felt that it was a it was an act of devotion to the Father, and it was something that he was prompting them to. And I have no problem with that personally. In um, 5 verse 3, this is an excellent example of a verse that's so easy to gloss over, but if we do so, we can get theology that is out of kilter. He says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole Torah. Now, did you notice something here? Paul's, th- this, is, this is how I see it. Paul is saying, if you are from a non-Jewish background and you're uncircumcised, then somehow your relationship to the Torah changes if you choose to get circumcised. You are obligated to keep the whole thing. What does that mean? Does that mean that non-Jewish people are not obligated to keep the whole Torah? I don't know. That, that you could probably infer from this verse. Does that mean the Torah is only for Jews? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the, the, the broader body of Pauline literature, he very strongly supports equality with all people. So could it be that the Torah is for everybody, but using terms like you must do this, you are obligated to do it, isn't the best language to express our relationship to the Torah? Could it be that it's more a thing of we get to do the Torah. It is my personal choice to do the Torah. I do it because I love Yeshua and I want to follow him. Could it, could it be that those are better terms to express our relationship to the Torah? I, I think so. Um, uh, Daniel Lancaster with First Fruits of Zion, he did an excellent little write-up on Galatians 5 verse 3. Um, it's, on, it's on their website. Uh, if, you just, if you read Galatians, just, just Google like FFOZ space Galatians 5.3. And, and it'll come up. I, I encourage you to read it. I, I think it's insightful. He raises some excellent questions. I feel that Galatians 5.3 is a verse that has never been very well answered by people who say all believers are obligated to keep the whole Torah. Uh, I, I've never seen a good response to it yet. Um, I'll, I'll read you a very short snippet from um, Daniel Lancaster's write-up. Um, there's the idea that what, what, what Paul was talking about there was the oral law. He was saying, you know, if you get circumcised, then you have to keep the oral law as well as the written law. You know, the oral law includes things like washing your hands before you eat, etc. And uh, Lancaster wrote, some one-law proponents explain that Galatians 5.3 refers not to the Torah, but to the oral law. 
Is it possible that Paul meant to refer to the oral Torah instead of the written Torah? Perhaps he meant, if you become Jewish, you will be obligated to keep both the oral law and the written law. Gentiles, on the other hand, were only required to keep the written Torah. That explanation doesn't work. First, Paul did not refer to Jewish tradition as Torah. Neither he nor the apostles referred to the concept of oral law. The oral law as a formal body was not yet compiled or codified. Instead, Paul speaks of the, quote, customs of the fathers and the, quote, traditions. But he never equates those customs and traditions with the Torah. None of the apostles did. Secondly, this interpretation fails to protect the one law theology because it purports that Jewish believers do have a different obligation to Torah than Gentile believers. Jewish believers must keep the written and oral Torah, but Gentiles must keep only the written Torah. I thought that's, that's perceptive, I, I think. So, anyway, in Galatians 5.6, he says, In Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. What does circumcision mean there? Is it just the physical act? Yeah, it, it, it means Jewish status. It means being officially or halachically Jewish. And this is what Paul says. In Yeshua, when it comes to like living in Him, in our parameters, in the person of the Messiah, Jewishness and non-Jewishness is a non-issue. But what did he say? But what is, a, what is the big thing? Faith and love. Actually, um, I'm not going to get into this this time, but when we hit Thessalonians, I'm, I, I'd like to explain to you how basically the message of the Shema is the heart of Paul's message. Uh, the, the pillars of faith and love. Well, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little trailer for that and we'll, we'll hit that in a couple weeks from now. So anyway, if like Jewishness and non-Jewishness is the main thing in a congregation, then faith and love are going to be left by the wayside at some point and that congregation is going to derail. And I, I, I feel like there are many congregations in the Messianic Jewish world especially that really need to take this first to heart. There's something greater here than being Jewish or non-Jewish. And I mean, you know, some of us are Jewish. Some of us have, are discovering our Jewish ancestry and we treasure that. And that is, that is important. That's something to treasure. But at the same time, what, what did Yeshua say? Something greater has come, right? Yeshua is where it's at. Yeah. Galatians 5, 7. I love this. Paul talks about obeying the truth. Uh, this is a, a very Hebraic concept. In the Western world, we talk about believing the truth. We talk about, you know, I give mental assent to the truth. Uh, my theology. But the Middle Eastern mindset, the biblical one is, truth is not just something to say, yeah, I believe that. Truth is something to be obeyed. Like, truth demands obedience, eh? And that, that's a hard hitter for me. Like, look at someone, and their lifestyle will tell you whether, what they believe. Not what they say, look at their lifestyle. That will tell you if they truly believe the Word of God, if they take the Word of God seriously, eh? So, doing the truth, absolutely. Uh, First John talks about that. He talks over and over about practicing the truth. Yeshua talked about that in John 3 also. Yeah. Um, Galatians 5.11. This is in verse 12. um, I'm on a personal journey right now to understand the gospel for myself. Like, I, I know the basics, right? But I just feel like there's so much more to the message of Messiah, to the gospel, the deep meaning of it, the power of it. I, I feel like 
there has to be more to the gospel than what I have seen in my life so far. Um, the, the, the cross, the whole concept of what the cross represents. Um, I, I'm on a journey right now to really understand that. Hey, So I, I watch for verses about that. And this is interesting. In Galatians 5.11, he says, So, it, it, brothers, if, if I'm still preaching circumcision, in other words, convert to Judaism and you'll be saved, you'll be um, on the in and in, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Okay, stumbling block. That's a Hebrew idiom. What does it mean? Like, okay, if someone says something and you get offended at it, that's a stumbling block, right? What happens when you trip over something? You stumble or you fall on your face, you crash, right? So um, if you've ever had an instance in your life where someone says something and it just like, boom, and you just crash emotionally and you're down... I don't know, maybe that just happens to me. That's like a stumbling block, right? It's like you just face plant, right, emotionally speaking or whatever. That's the idea here. It's just something where it's like systems crash. I can't, that doesn't compute. I can't accept that. Or that really makes me mad. That's kind of the idea here. And Paul says that's the cross. If you're really preaching the cross and what it represents, that's going to happen. There's just something about it that's a stumbling block. There's something about it that's offensive. There's something about it that will just cause people to get mad or have systems crashes where it's just like, blank face, I don't get it. It's kind of the idea there. And he, he contrasts this. He contrasts whatever the cross represents with this pushing Jewishness as the, as the big thing approach. So I just, I wonder, I just wonder what that means. Like, for us as a community that practices the Torah, that's founded on the foundational scriptures, but that's also New Covenant oriented, what, what does the cross mean to us? What does the cross mean in terms of how I, I see you, how you see me? You know, across uh, ethnic lines even, if someone's Jewish or non-Jewish, how is the cross relevant to that? You know, these are some of the questions that, uh, that Galatians brings up. They're very relevant questions today as, um, as the Messianic Jewish movement grows. And then in, in verse 13, he says, okay, so you guys were called to freedom, but listen, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You could, I think you could say that like, okay, so you're free, but don't use that just as an excuse for self-gratification. Don't be living for yourself just because you're free. On the contrary, like use your freedom to serve the people around you to serve your family, you know, use your freedom to be a slave is kind of maybe what he's saying there. And I like that. It's kind of antithetical almost, hey? Use your freedom to be a slave. But then you're doing it because you want to, because you love. Yeah, that's a real challenge, I think. Um, actually, uh, Pastor Brent Radowski was talking about that when uh, Jack Zimmerman with Jewish Voice was, was up in Saskatoon a couple of weeks ago. He said, guys, this whole grace message, a lot of people just use it as an excuse for living in the flesh and being sloppy and not obeying God. And he said, you know, it's the opposite, actually. Grace is even a higher standard. You know, if it's just the Torah, what does it say? Don't commit adultery. Grace ratches it right up till it's a matter of the heart. What are you thinking about, eh? And I just, man, I've just felt like that brother is so on track with that. I, I, I hear the, the same message here. How are you going to use your freedom? Just to do what you want? No, that's not what freedom's for. Um, verse 15, he says, So if you bite 
and devour one another. Take care that you're not consumed by one another. I think it's a really, I, I, I don't know, I don't really feel that that applies in our co- community, but it's something to be aware of. You know, like sometimes when we as believers, we begin to get a little critical of each other. We begin to nitpick and point out flaws and stuff. And you're beginning to bite. You know what I'm saying? Biting, we usually bite each other in verbal ways by talking about someone else, right? So we talk about someone, we take a little... Like, like dogs almost, you know, take a little nip over here, a little nip over there. And Paul, what I hear Paul saying is like, guys, if you start down that track, where is it going to stop? You're going to end up killing each other. You're going to end up destroying your community, right? So the question is, do you even want to start? Do you even want to take, if we were like, uh, I don't know, do any of you guys like dogs? I like dogs. I think dogs are really cool. Sometimes dogs are even nicer to be around than people. I heard a pastor this week say, you know, I really like dogs. If I, I, I would start a con- church just, with, just for dogs. Because dogs, get, I like dogs. Sometimes they're nicer than people, you know. But anyway, um, so it's kind of like, if we were like a, a pack of dogs, would we even want to start nipping at each other, right? Or would we want to watch each other's tails? Yeah, that's how I, that's how I see that, that analogy. Um, it's like a code of honor, eh? Like, I, I'm really into this code of honor thing right now. It's just something that I'm working through in my mind that I'm formulating. But, like, I have an inner code that I want to live by, just like the knights of the realm, just like the, like the warriors of ancient times. They had a code, and they lived by that code, and they died by that code. And, you know, we, we, as believers, we have a code of honor. Like, every, the, I'm here to honor every one of you and to uphold your honor. You know? It's kind of the opposite of taking nips at each other. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, verse 5, verse 16, Paul says, um, walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. In other words, like, doing life by the Spirit. I'm on a quest to understand what that means too. But whatever it means, it'll be the opposite of self-gratification. Right? It'll be like living for other people. I don't I like Galatians. Like, this is so practical, Hey? And then he says in verse 18, so if you are like doing life with the Spirit, then you're not going to fall into legalism. Somehow doing life with the Spirit and legalism are like opposites to each other. Yeah. So instead of being like, don't want to be religious, no, don't want to be religious, avoid legalism, just say, I want to live by the Spirit. I want to like live full of the Spirit. I can think of instances in the last year where if someone you know that someone's maybe criticizing you and your pride is going to like rise up and be offended or want to fight back. But it's like, hey, that's my pride. Just going to let that go. I'm going to let it die. It's kind of like, I don't know, this last year or two, I've been coming to really appreciate hard situations because they're opportunities to get more humbled, you know? Get more grace. Want to get the grace, man. (laughs) And every crisis there's an opportunity to grow in his grace that's true there's also an opportunity to freak out if you enjoy freaking out just joking yeah that's really good Genevieve can you remind me of that next time I hit a crisis this is an opportunity for something okay I'll remind you too maybe like hey Genevieve remember what John said opportunity (laughs) okay um okay now Paul was really judgmental if he lived in today's culture, he would make a lot of people really, really mad. Listen to this. In Galatians 5.21, he actually has the chutzpah to say that he lists all these things that like, people do, religious and non-religious people. And then he says, those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. 
I mean, that's like that's pretty that's pretty heavy, isn't it? People who do this stuff on a regular basis will not inherit God's kingdom. Yikes. So, you know, I, I admit I've never really, like, thought too much about that stuff. I kind of like the verses right after that, the happy verses about love and peace and all the good stuff, right? But this, this last week, I really, I really broke down some of these words. And I, I want to take a second to look at them with you because, like, that's serious. Paul says if we practice this stuff on a regular basis, like, it's done for you. Like, inherit there means get, basically, right? It means you won't get God's kingdom. So, um, yeah, let's, let's look at that together. Um, I noticed something here. There are two main categories of, like, let's call them, uh, what are we going to call these things, these things that he lists? Sin. sin. Okay. <laughs> of sin. Works of, the works of the flesh. Yeah, he calls them works of the flesh, right? That's like, um, what's another, what's like a, another term for works of the flesh? It's kind of like when you're, like, flesh is often the same thing as yourself, right? Your old nature. So works of the flesh is like, Selfishness. Selfish. Is that what you say, Greg? I said selfish desire. Selfish desire. Okay, that's good. So let's break some of those down. Now, some of these, okay, like in, in, our, in our culture, we kind of have this dichotomy. And uh, often religious people will be like, okay, these activities are really bad. And then these ones we just won't talk about because they're a little closer to home. So it's like if you go to wild parties and get hammered every weekend and enjoy going to the strip club or whatever, that's really bad in our culture, right? But if you're really mean and critical or, or whatever, that one kind of, it's okay. You know what I mean? Okay, so let's, let's look at these, and we're just going to look at these and see, okay, which one of these are like uh, the non-religious stuff that people, like that non-religious people fall into, and which of these are the ones that we as religious people are sometimes in danger of falling into? Because like, okay, guys, we read the Bible, we believe in God, that means like we're either religious or we're in danger of being religious, right? Like sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. So I, you know, so some of these here are like, oh, of course I don't do that. Like he talks about drunkenness, that means getting hammered every weekend. Carousing, that's like wild parties. Um, What are some other ones? Immorality, that's like sleeping around, promiscuity, right? Um, Those are kind of ones that have more of a stigma in our society. Idolatry, you know, hardcore paganism, going down to the local shrine and, you know, dropping on your face before the little idol and saying some prayers to the idol or whatever. It's like, okay, those are the ones that aren't in our box, right? Generally speaking. Although, you know what, that's important too. Paul said, like, you do that stuff, you're out. You're out with God, right? And you know what, like, sometimes with the hyper-grace message, people need to hear that. Like, getting hammered every weekend, going to wild parties, loose living, sleeping around before you're married, you do that, you're out with God, right? Those are the words of Paul. Um, but let's look at some of these other ones, too. He, um, he talks about um, enmity. So I looked that one up. It means hostility or uh, making enemies of people. So it's kind of like enmity is the opposite of being friendly, of being amiable, of making friends with people, Right? So, you know, like, if you have this natural propensity to start making enemies, something's wrong. It's like, take a pulse check, right? And guys, like, as I go through these, let's, like, let the Holy Spirit shine on each one of these. Because as I look through these, I was like, Abba, like, man, I can see times in my life when I've had these attitudes, when I've acted in these capacities. It's terrifying. And uh, you know what? I still have those propensities in me, you know? So uh, let's, let's, like, let's make this personal, so that was the first one. Um, the second one is strife. 
The Greek word is eris, and it means a quarrel, argument, debate, wrangling. Kind of sounds like midrash in some messianic communities. Ouch. No, seriously. The way some people midrash in some communities, I think they're in danger of disqualifying themselves from the kingdom of God. Because it becomes a big argument with a bunch of people's pride getting all mixed up in it. And it's not cool. And it does not exalt Yeshua. It has nothing to do with like the life-giving spirit. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I don't think we've really had much of that here. But anyway, that's one. Strife. So, you know, watch out for strife when it comes to midrashing. Envying is the Greek word phonos. Everybody say phonos. <laughs> um, that one means ill will. Uh, detracting from someone else. Uh, it's from the Greek word phthero. Everybody say phthero. It's hard to say pho and tha next to each other, hey? <laughs> kind of like, oh, better not touch that or it's going to shock me. It's all soaking wet now. Um, it means to destroy or ruin, right? So like an attitude that is out to ruin other people, maybe their reputation or honor, to destroy other people, that is, um, that's this word for envy, Right. So if we spend more time detracting from other people's joy, if we spend more time talking people down behind their backs, that's this word. And Paul says you do that on a regular basis, you're out. That's the next word. Um, disputes. Oh, you guys are going to love this one. It's um, erythia, and it means intrigue. It's from the uh, Greek word er- Erethedzo, to stir up. It has the connotation of like, okay, intrigue. What's the word that you think of when I say intrigue? Mystery. I think of church politics. I mean, really, you know, when there's just like undercurrents all over the place, it's like dangerous waters to navigate, and there are all these like things going on. That's that word. Uh, that's, that's disputes, erethia. So it's like going around in a community and stirring up intrigue, making trouble, like power struggles and stuff. That's all stuff that Paul says like can get you out of the kingdom really fast. Yeah, because that's not from his kingdom. And then um, the next one is dissensions. It's dicostasia, and it just means disunion or disunity. And um, that's a pretty simple one. And then the last one is factions, and it's the word heresis. Um... This word is um, translated as sect in other places, like where it talks about the sect of the Sadducees. The Greek word there is heresis. It's the word that we get heretic and heresy from in English. So um, you probably have the idea there. And that one's from the Greek term for choice. So you know this thing where like, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure this one out, but it's like when everybody just does what they want, basically, you end up with heresy. You end up with a ton of sects. And Paul says, like, that's not in the kingdom of God. Those, those are like, that is Paul's lineup of the sins that we as religious people fall into. It's kind of a ripoff, actually, if you ask me. Because, you know, like, non-religious people, they get to, have, like, party and have a lot of fun before they go to hell. And religious people who are mean and ugly like this, they don't even get to have fun before they go to hell. They just live really unhappy lives and make a lot of other people miserable, and then they go to hell. That's true. Fun doesn't mean genuine happiness. That's right. But I'm kind of half saying that tongue-in-cheek, of course. So anyway, you know what? When I I read that, I'm like, man, when I look at the broader Messianic movement, I'm like, are any of us even in the kingdom? 
Because, I mean, like, we have so many things that we differ about, and, like, congregation splits all over the place. But, you know what, but that's not the right approach. Here's the right approach. Father, I'm here before you, and I'm just going to open my heart before you. Please take that stuff out of my life, especially during unleavened bread. And you can start with me, Father, because I'm just responsible for myself. And that's as far as it goes, right? We're not here to like walk around with a checklist and be like, yeah, this community over here, they really have an issue with this and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like, I'm just going to keep it like, I'm going to be responsible for me and I'm going to pray for everybody else. And I, I have to admit, like, I'm really thankful at the degree of freedom that we have as a community. I really appreciate the sweet spirit we have with each other. Like, I don't feel any of these like scary things with any of you guys. And, and, and thank you for that, you know. Let's just, as a core group, the Father is going to bring more people into our midst. He's going to send new believers to us. You know what? People straight out of the world have no problems doing this stuff. They don't even know what's wrong a lot of the time. So, you know, let's be prepared to help people understand the kingdom of code of honor and how we do stuff as a community, right? What our standards are. I, I feel like he's laying a really solid foundation in that area. So when he begins to send new disciples to us, we'll be ready to disciple them, and it's not going to topple our tree because we have deep roots, eh? To use that analogy. So, um, moving on in Galatians. This is another very practical one. Okay, says, if someone's caught in any trespass, that's like when you violate a commandment of God, when you do something he said not to do, or when you don't do something he said to do, that's a trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you two won't be tempted. So, you know, our first response is to maybe judge that person, maybe get on the phone and talk about that person's shortcoming. Of course, it's a prayer request, right? Because we can always package gossip as prayer requests, like part of our, you know, our Christian culture often. But, you know, often that's our response. But what Paul says is, like, a couple of you need to, like, get together and humbly go to that person. He says, in a spirit of gentleness. That means, like, a gentle attitude, a humble approach. And go with a heart for restoration, I admit, sometimes when someone does something wrong, especially if they wrong me, I just want to go and like slap, like body slam that person or like put their face into like a trunk of a car or something. You know, like, like not pretty things. But like Paul says, like here's the attitude, here's the main intent, and, uh, and it's good. You know, that's Yeshua's spirit. So that's another thing. That's our MO. That's our motive, modus operandi as a community, right? And you know what? We are going to have people in our midst who sin, who sin grievously, heaven forbid, but because we're humans, it'll probably happen, and we need to know what to do when it happens. So now we know what to do, right? <laughs> but you know what, that, that, that reaction to me is pride, right? Like, that's dead wrong. And when that comes up, I'm just like, Abba, here I am. Thank you that you're transforming me and saving me. You know, I'm just going to lay down the self-life. Lifelong process, you know, never stops. Die, flesh, die! <laughs> like that. <laughs> right on. Yeah, um, okay, Galatians 6.4, here's another really practical one. Each one must examine his own work, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. What I get out of that is like, again, focus on yourself and what you are doing for the kingdom. I'm going to give you a practical example. When First Fruits of Zion came out with their, their uh, new doctrinal change, um, you know, it caused a big stir in the Messianic community. And there were a lot of people slamming First Fruits of Zion. Sometimes it became very personal. Sometimes people would grill them for their motives, which is a big no-no. Hi, Tears, do you want to sit with me? Okay. And um, it, it was ugly, right? 
And um, some, there, were, there were people who would just be raking first fruits of Zion over the coals and challenging their motives. Come, you want to come soon? Get over here, you. You want me to chase you, that's what. Yeah, you get over here. She likes me to chase her, but I can't chase you right now, Teresa. You want to sit with me? Okay. And um, anyway, and you know what? There were, there, were, there were times when I wanted to say to people like, how many people have the first fruits of Zion team brought to Torah? I count them. There were over 40,000 people that did the, the uh, initial um, high sowed course. Wow. That's a lot. And, the, and how many people have you brought to the Torah? I mean, seriously. Who are you to be criticizing these guys? They're doing a good work for the kingdom. They've brought tens of thousands of people to the Torah. You've brought maybe five people to the Torah. So really, why don't you just focus on yourself? Focus on your own outreach and focus on making more disciples instead of spending all your time wagging your tongue at other people. That's what I wanted to say, and I never said it. But, um, but that's what I get out of this. Paul is just saying, like, just look at yourself and just focus on what you're doing for the kingdom, right? What did he, what did he say in Romans? Like, who are you to judge another servant? You know, to his own master, he'll stand or fall, and he's going to stand because the master is able to make him stand. Yeah. So, um, Galatians 6, verses um, 7 and 8. I love this, too. He's... I guess that's not going to help. There. He says, okay, like, this is an area where we love to play games with, with the Almighty, where we like to fool around with Him. And he says, okay, guys, listen, don't trick yourselves. Like, and then he uses a farming analogy, right? If you're spending all your time, okay, he uses, like, the putting seed in the ground, and then it comes back later, and you get a lot more in return. I, I, I think it may be a more meaningful analogy today is the analogy of investments, Let's say you invest some money in a, in, a, in a safe stock or something. In long term, you're going to get more back. You're going to get dividends, right? So let's think in terms of that analogy. If you invest all of your time in self-gratification and doing what you want to do, you're going to get a lot of garbage back in the long run. It isn't going to be pretty, and you're going to, have a real, you're going to be really unhappy, and um, you might end up in hell in the end, and uh, you don't want to do that. But then, alternatively, if you're investing in your spiritual life, in living for Messiah, in serving the people around you, you're investing in something, and the dividends are going to be really good. You are going to have a high quality of life as a result. It's actually kind of ironic, hey? Like, okay, so if you live for yourself, and like, you know, hedonism, just doing what feels good, you'd think that you'd end up really happy and feeling really good, but actually you end up miserable and you end up with a really low quality of life and often suicidal. But if you focus on like living for the people around you, being there for them, being a humble servant, you end up really happy. These things like joy begin to flow through you, like irrational joy, you know, that transcends understanding. That means irrational in my, in my, in my opinion. But um, things like that, you end up with a high quality of life. So, man, isn't that a word for today? Like, isn't that a word for a hedonistic Western culture? I mean, even if someone isn't a believer, that still holds true. You live for the people around you, you're going to be a lot happier than if you live for yourself. And sometimes it's the transition too, eh? Because, I mean, as children, basically the world existed for us, right? You cry and you get fed, you get weighted on hand and foot. And, you know, even like, you get into your teens and often, you know, it's mostly like people are there to serve you. And then you hit this point where, like, Messiah starts to challenge you and say, okay, now you're here to serve other people. It's like, it's a massive paradigm shift, actually. And it's kind of painful. It's a painful process to go through, hey? 
Yeah, in my experience. Um, Galatians chapter 6. Let's look at one more thing here. Beginning in um, verse 14. Man, here's another thing. Paul's really judgmental. He says, Okay, so those who are circumcised, they don't even keep the Torah themselves. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty strong statement, hey? Even those people who are converting to Judaism or, you know, whatever, they don't even keep the Torah themselves. Uh, anyway, I guess they were guys who were, um, who were doing that. Here's an interesting thing. One of the commandments in the Torah is to listen to the prophet like Moses. And I uh, guess who that turned out to be? Yeshua. So you know what? You actually can't be Torah observant unless you take Yeshua seriously and listen to his teachings. It's one of the mitzvot. Yeah. It's kinda, I, I love the connection between the, the Torah and uh, all the stuff about Messiah, you know, in the, the apostolic scriptures. He goes on to say, like, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our master Yeshua the Messiah through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The, the word there can be like through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world too. What I, what I hear there is like, do I spend more time talking about, okay, you know, if, if, if you're Jewish, do you spend more time talking about the fact that you're Jewish than you do about the fact that you died with Yeshua and that he's the one who lives inside of you? Or, or name it, right? We all have our things. What is, what is your thing that you're really proud of? What is like your, what is your identifying characteristic? You know, what is it that you're like kind of put out there as something that's impressive? Maybe you have a degree. Maybe you have education. Maybe you've been a believer for like 45 years and that's what you talk about. That's what you boast on, right? Well, I've been a believer for this many years. And, but what if that isn't the thing? What if like, what if we're, what if it's better to boast about just the fact that you died? I died with Yeshua. That's the only thing I have to be proud of about myself, that I died with him. Because the father didn't see anything good in the old me, so he just killed the whole thing, right? And the only thing I have to be proud of now is Yeshua is the one living in me. I'm proud of him. I don't know, what, what if that's the idea there? Like, I'm trying to really get into this heart, the heart of this thing, eh? Yeah. Um, and then he goes on to say, in verse 15, I think he's talking specifically about the Jewishness, non-Jewishness thing, that is a big question in the Messianic world. Because he says, because neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. In other words, neither is like being halachically or legally Jewish anything or not. But what, what, what does matter here? A, a new creation. Just think about that. Like, okay, whether you have a drop of Israelite blood in you, whether that means like you're... Your, your father was a rabbi and your grandfather was a rabbi, or whether that means that you're from the lost tribes from 3,000 years ago. Um, that's you, who you are physically. But who you are spiritually is someone who died in Yeshua. You are someone in whom Yeshua is living. You're a new creation. Like, you're the image bearer of Elohim, just like Adam and Eve were in the beginning. I don't know, it's like, what, what, what happens when we really get excited about who we are in Messiah's new creations, eh? I mean, like, all the physical stuff, and it's, it's on its way out. It's all going to be new or renewed, right? And what's going to be left? Like, who we are in Messiah. I really want to focus on that. I want to get excited about that. So, this, I, I admit, going through Galatians has been something of a paradigm shift for me. It's, it, I feel like it's really helping me know what my priorities are in certain areas and what I want to focus on. So, yeah. Okay, let's look at, uh, let's look at Leviticus for a couple of minutes here, too. I love Leviticus. Okay, I'm gonna. I noticed something here. This is this is a glorious chapter in the Leviticus chapter nine. 
verses 4 and 6, this is what it says. Today Yahweh will appear to you, in verse 4. And then in verse 6, that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. Can you imagine, like, uh, I don't know, let's say you guys in Shellbrook, let's say that a prophet, like, arrived at your doorstep and he's going to, and he said, like, today God is going to physically appear to you in his glory. So do a couple things to get ready. Can you imagine, like, if he was like, hey, it's, uh, what is the time? It's like 6.30 in the morning and I just got you guys out of bed. And at 3 o'clock this afternoon, he's going to appear to you. Like, can you imagine the suspense you'd feel? I'd be like, what is it going to look like? How am I going to feel? I can't even imagine this. But um, that's the idea here, right? It's really exciting. And then, um, and then it happens at the end of Leviticus 9. In some regards, this is almost, I see this as being like the grand finale of the whole Torah. Like this is the climax of the Pentateuch. It says, um, when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Like, can you imagine a roaring fire just shooting out of the tent? And like, like there goes the, the offerings and everybody just drops like they're dead. Like one or two million people. I don't know. What would it be like if, um, let's say you have a stadium with 20,000 people and let's say suddenly like, a, a meteor comes hurtling through the atmosphere and like embeds itself in like a, in the in the middle of the football field. What would the crowd do? Like, can you imagine like the cry, the scream? Right, that that's what happened. That's like man, I, that's the climax of the Torah, if you ask me. But um, there's I don't know, like was his glory just something for then? Or is his glory something for today too? Like, does Yahweh want to reveal himself in our generation also? Or is that just something from bygone days? I I think it's for now. And um, I I see six specific things here that Moses and Aaron did to prepare for that revelation of the Holy One in his holiness and in like massive glory. So let's look at those for a second. Um, Firstly, in Leviticus chapter 9 verse 6, he simply said, this is the thing which Yahweh has commanded you to do that Yahweh's glory may appear to you. So the prophetic gift was there. He was saying, I want you to do these things. This is the procedure. Um, In addition to listening to his voice in terms of the prophetic gift, I think that also includes simply doing what he said in the Bible, right? You practice the Torah, you are preparing for the revelation of his glory. You're preparing to see massive power break out in your life, like the kind of power that makes people shout and fall on their faces, um, the real thing, eh? That's the first thing I see. Um, in 9 verse 5, he says, it says, So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before Yahweh. So I noticed three things there. Firstly, it was the whole congregation. So it wasn't a bunch of like mavericks running around and loose individuals doing what they wanted. There's a community aspect to meeting with the Almighty. He revealed himself to a community of people. And then what does it say? They did two things, two verbs. It says they came near. So that's like what we do regularly, right? It's the whole point, coming near to him. And it says they stood before him. That is the idea of like presenting yourself, eh? So even in worship, eh? Like when we worship on Shabbat mornings and any other time, let's, or, or when you pray. I, I like to stand before Yahweh when I pray every morning. Remember that you're not just standing there, you're standing before him. You're presenting yourself to an individual. And when we all do that, then we're presenting ourselves as a community. And you know what? He responds to that. 
Like when we say, I love you, and I'm going I'm to do what you say, and I'm coming close to you, and here I am, Father. Like, boom, he responds to that powerfully. Yeah, that's, that's what I get out of this, out of this chapter. Um, Leviticus 9, verses 2 to 4, he says, make an offering. So there's that thing again where we bring him something meaningful to us, where we express our love to him, and he responds tangibly. Um, there, are two, there are two sides to that offering thing. In Leviticus 9, 7, it says the, the, the priest approached, he came close, and he atoned for sin. So when we look at the atonement that Yeshua made for us, we will see the glory. That's kind of a track we've been on for several weeks, hey? When we look at what Yeshua did at the cross, we see the love of the Father, we see the glory of God, like no other time in all of history. Um, secondly, in 9 verse 7, it also says, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering, so that's the atonement, right? And your burnt offering. What's the Hebrew word for burnt offering? Ola. That's right. What's, what's that one? That's like something that's totally burned up and that goes up, right? That's a picture of you and me. Like when we say, Father, I'm here, I'm giving you all of myself, I'm holding nothing back. Just consume me with your fire, with your love and zeal. He will respond to that. His glory will come as a result. Also, two more things. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 8, we see that it wasn't just Aaron's job, it was the job of Aaron and his sons. Um, we see that in verse 9 too. These guys were like working together. They were cooperating. It says, Aaron's sons presented the blood to him. Um, in verse 12, it says, then he, slaughtered, then he, Aaron, slaughtered the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. So what I see there is like, when, when we as families learn to work together and cooperate in accomplishing the mission that the Father has given us, his glory comes through in that. It's a very powerful demonstration of who he is. And um, we're all at different places with that. You know, some of us have children or grandchildren who are not walking with God or doing their own thing or whatever. And uh, what, what I see there is just like the father saying, this is important. So keep praying for your family. Keep praying for your children. Keep praying for your grandchildren. Don't settle for anything less than his promises. You know, if he said, believe in Yeshua and you will be saved, you and your household, don't settle for anything less. Like, be tenacious in prayer, right? Don't give up any of your children or grandchildren. And um, even think about this. Malachi 4. He said, okay, Elijah's going to come before Messiah to uh, get everybody ready. And what is Elijah going to do? He's going to restore families. He's going to teach dads and sons to work together, right? Turning the hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the fathers. And like, that's, that's a big thing. That's the spirit of Elijah, So think about this, like with all of the prophetic stuff, with all of the charismatic things going on in the charismatic world, a hallmark of the true prophetic spirit should be a focus on family and seeing families restored, calling dads and calling moms to responsibility, to serve, to being the people that he's calling them to be, calling children to like start treating their parents with respect and working with their parents in the mission that the father's given their parents. Wow. That's the prophetic spirit. That is what Elijah does, right? I, so I have to admit, like in my, in my involvement with the charismatic world in the last 15 or 20 years, I, there's a big lack of that. Often you, you'll have a whole service, you'll have a prophet so-and-so, and he'll talk for an hour, and family won't be mentioned once. And I feel like maybe something's missing in that picture. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just saying I feel like this is something where Yeshua is, he's highlighting that. He's bringing it to the forefront. And uh, 
And you know what? We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep claiming everything he has for our families. Yeah. Like for, uh, for some of you, like we, we pray for each other. Genevieve and I pray for, you know, some, some of you have children. We've talked about this where they're not like really walking so close with the Father. You know, we pray for them every day, you know, because we're with each other as a community. And uh, that's, the, that's a huge one there. Here's the last one. In uh, Leviticus 9, 22 and 23, what happened right before the glory appeared? In verse 23. Oh, actually, 22 also. Yeah, it says in verse 22, there an Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Verse 23, it says, when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. So, I challenge myself with this. I challenge you, learn to bless. Like, if you are a believer in Yeshua, then you are a priest who represents the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he has authorized you to bless people. That means you don't even have to always say, Father, I pray that you bless this person. You can say, Father, I bless this person in your name. You can say the right to a person. I bless you in, the, in, in Yeshua's name. Th- that's powerful. That's something, you know, as, as a relatively young husband and father, I'm still learning about what does it look like to bless my wife regularly? What does it look like to bless, you know, at this point, my child? I'm already praying for our grandchildren. I'm getting ready for that, you know. What does it look like to bless my grandchildren in the generations to come? Um, what does it look like to bless the government of Canada? What does it look like to bless the city of Prince Albert? Because as we grow in that, as we move in that authority, we're going to see His glory come through us. That's what I see there. So, you know, like, I, I challenge you with this. This is something I want to learn to do. I want to just get up in the morning and be like, Father, I bless Canada. I bless Prince Albert. I bless their government. I bless my family to 10 generations. Like, what does it look like to just get up and just cut loose and bless with the power that He's given you? That's, that's like, that's practical, eh? You know, his glory will come as a result. Yeah. So let's cut loose in that. Like, let's grow in that area. Right. Think of that. Like, the, he's given us the authority to loose, to release his blessing. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like someone, I feel like like an eight-year-old boy that's, and someone just gave me, like, an AK-47 or something. Like, in a good way, you know? Like, it's like, wow, this is a really powerful tool. And this is going to be fun. You know? Um, I don't know, guns can be destructive. I don't want to infer that, but you know what I mean, you know. Brand new DeWalt drill. Uh, yeah, sure, a brand new DeWalt drill. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if I give an eight-year-old that. Although, Tirza plays with my Makita drill, and she really likes it. Okay. Um, let's just talk for like two or three minutes about the dietary laws, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important chapter. Uh, Yeshua said in Matthew 5, in the context of talking about the Torah, he said, okay, if you want to be like the little guy in the kingdom, like the nobody, you know, with the little shack, like way on the outskirts or whatever in the kingdom, just like don't take the commandments seriously, even the little commandments, and, you know, teach, and, and influence other people not to take them seriously too. And that'll make you the little guy. It's kind of like nice. If anyone aspires to that, then it's really easy to get there. But he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom and you do want to be great in the kingdom, take the Torah seriously. Practice all the commandments, even the least of them. I don't know, some of this stuff about, you know, if a dead animal falls in your, in your flower pot, like whatever, to me that's kind of like probably qualifies as some of the lesser of the commandments in terms of how people value them. Um, but you know what Yeshua is saying? That stuff's important. 
In the kingdom of heaven, that stuff's important. So let's just look at that for a second. Um, Leviticus 11 is cool because it's the very middle of the Torah. If you look at all the letters of the Torah, the very middle of the Torah is in Leviticus 11. It's actually interesting. In the Jewish world, it's called the belly of the Torah. And what is it about? It's about what we put in our bellies. Yeah. And ironically, the middle letter is a vav, and it's in the Hebrew word gachon. And guess what gachon means? Belly. So the middle word of the Torah, the belly of the Torah, is the word for belly. And um, what was the very first mitzvah, the first commandment that God gave humankind? Don't eat something. Okay? So when there was only one law, only one law to keep, it was a dietary law. Isn't that interesting? And did he give that so they could be healthy? Or did he give it just to see if they would respect his authority and obey him? Yeah. Now, you know what? There, there is benefit to the dietary laws, but what if, above all, he told the people of Israel, don't eat this stuff, just because he wanted to see if they would obey him? Could it be that that's a test of our obedience sometimes? Man, like seriously, when I see candy that has like gelatin, which is from pork in it, I want to eat that candy with everything in me because I really like candy. And like, that is one of the ultimate tests of my obedience to God. Maybe that sounds funny, but that is when I really tell him like whether I respect his word or not. And that's just for me, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting anything on you, but that's where it's at for me. <laughs> so that's an important part of the dietary stuff. Um, there's some verses in the New Testament that could be construed to be doing away with the dietary laws. As we've been going through the apostolic scriptures, we've been touching on those, and it's pretty obvious that it's not what I was talking about. Um, we're not going to go through all those because it's a big topic. But um, anyway, he finishes by talking about identity. This is the main point. There's a difference between identity and behavior, right? Which comes first? Identity. At the end, he says, okay, I am holy... And so I want you to be holy too, because I'm your God, and you're my people. That's why I want you to do that stu- this stuff, right? So if we ever get the behavior thing first, we're missing the point. It's not so much about your behavior, as it's about who you are. And then when you understand who you are, and who he is, the way you live will follow, right? So let's just remember that. You know, Leviticus 11, he says very clearly, guys, I'm holy, so I want you to... Be holy in very practical ways. I want you to express holiness in your diet. I want you to express holiness in how you handle dead animal carcasses. Think about that, eh? <laughs> it's like just throwing your clothes in the wash. That's actually part of holiness, according to the Bible. <laughs> and of course, it's more than that, right? But sometimes we have this image of holiness. It's like people who float around and are very spiritual and use like really big words and stuff. And you know what? Maybe that's part of it sometimes. But, like, the foundational stuff is, like, it's really practical. Holiness is really practical. And I think he's calling us back to understand that. So, maybe we can leave it at that today. There are, like, some things in the end about, you know, if, like, a dead, if a dead animal comes in contact. I'll, I'll sum it up for you, okay? If you, like, touch a dead animal or have to carry it somewhere, throw your clothes in the wash is basically what he said, both for clean and unclean animals. And if, like, a dead animal, like, you know, comes in contact with a food item, like uh, like a Tupperware, let's say, wash the thing. So, uh, you remember Anne of Green Gables? Do you guys see Anne of Green Gables? Remember the, de- the mouse that fell into the crock, the, the crock pot? 
and she didn't know what to do, and then they had the visitors, and right before the visitor was going to eat the, what was it, from the crock pot, it's been like a long time since I saw it. She was like, ah, she screamed, she couldn't handle it. It's kind of like if Anne of Green Gables grew up like doing the Torah, that wouldn't have been, that would have never come that close to happening, right? Because he just kind of knows some basic things. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a horror story from my teen years. You guys will, you guys will enjoy this. Uh, I went to like a camp up north when I was 16, and a buddy of mine told me he'd give me 25 cents if I ate one of those fuzzy black and yellow caterpillars. And I mean, like, I was totally out of touch with practical holiness in terms of my diet and stuff at this point. So I was like, oh yeah, I'll do it, right? So I made a big show of eating this caterpillar. What I didn't know is they're highly poisonous, and all those fuzzies are actually like little barbs, and they stick in your tongue and in your throat, like little teeny tiny metal slivers. Oh, and then we were going, and then we had to take the bus like six hours back to Saskatoon that day. And I was so sick, and I was in so much pain, and I was throwing up like very frequently when there was nothing left to throw up. And, and like, oh, it was one of the worst days of my life. And then a six hour bus ride with all these happy kids, right? And um, so then I, yeah, for 25 cents, and he didn't give me the 25 cents originally. And uh, anyway, so then I went home, and I, like, I just went to bed, and I slept for 24 hours. And my mom called, like, emergency, because I could barely breathe. Like, I was really swollen up. And she's like, my son just swallowed one of those black and yellow caterpillars, and he's having a reaction. What should I do? And so they're like, well, how old is your son? They were assuming I would be three or four. She's like, he's 16. (laughs) And they're like, he's 16, and he's eating caterpillars? It's like, anyway... Yeah, right. I'm pretty good at chugging stuff. So, yeah, I made it all the way down for better or worse. But so he, actually, my friend, when he heard what happened, he was felt so bad he gave me a loony instead of a quarter. So it kind of turned out okay. Yeah. Well, I've had some bad experiences with this stuff, you know. But you think about it, too. Like, if you bought, let's say, a 2011... Dodge Ram 3500 with dualies. Let's say it was totally souped up and chromed up, like 60 grand or whatever. Would you dump like dirty fuel in your vehicle? Of course not. But like when you think about our bodies, like our bodies, technologically speaking, are way more advanced. Yeah, they're actual temples too. But I mean, really, and like, I don't know, seriously, sometimes like, yeah. When I, when I think in terms of the Dodge Ram 3500 analogy, I all of a sudden feel me, more inspired to take care of my body because it's like, it's even more expensive than a truck. And I'm going to have the thing for a little longer too, you know what I'm saying? Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.